This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And of course, the big story, um, not just in tech, but everywhere this week, is Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter. Jason Gay from the Wall Street Journal has been following the story closely. Welcome, Jason. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Peter. How are you? Good. I, but I, I want to know, are you going to pay $20 a month <laughs> to have your, your, your check mark verified or guaranteed? You know, I think like it just sort of hits you at that. Um, what's that? You know, the price point of your ego, right? It's like uh, my ego is probably worth nineteen ninety nine a month, but twenty might be a bridge too far for me. I don't know if I could get there. It's just absurd that the notion that you're going to somehow take your heaviest users and then make them pay for basically creating the whole propulsion of the site. Although I do kind of like. I mean, Twitter is by definition, masochistic and sort of punishing the people who use it the most, not just mm. it's bad enough that you're addicted to Twitter. Now we're going to literally just take money from you. But um, let's stop the ruse. Um, as you all know, Jason is not just a Twitter <laughs> expert. He is the Wall Street Journal sports and humor columnist, which is one of the mm. most hilarious titles there is. Yes. And he also has a new book. What's the book <laughs> called, Jason? It's called I Wouldn't Do That If I Were Me. Uh, modern blunders and modest triumphs, but mostly blunders. You have to have a subhead, Peter, in the you know in in twenty twenty two. It's not yes, sufficient it, to just have a single title. You did have a good line in your book about about another option you were considering. You can swear. <laughs> so, what was the other option for this book? Well, I just was you know like a lot of folks noticing that um, coarse language had become part of the. Uh, title cycle, you know, the bestsellers, we've seen a lot of bestsellers with four letter words in the title. And so, you know, the joke with me and my editor was at one point we were going to name the book, Hey, Blank Hole, you know, I I, I don't know if I want to swear, but but you know what I mean? I mean, it, are we going to say that uh, to sell books? And, and we just decided we're going to keep it PG-13 over here at the Wall Street Journal. I think that worked really good, especially during COVID time, especially in an airport. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming that your role model here is Dave Barry, but I need to check myself because I've never read Dave Barry. Is this is this a Dave Barry-like attempt on your part? Well, you know, from your lips to God's ears, I could sound like Dave Barry, but I mean, the truth of the matter is that the book is kind of a throwback in the respect that, you know, you and I are old enough to remember a time when newspaper columnists were steadily churning out books that, you know, you built your name in the newspaper, but you also, you know, put out whether it's compendiums of columns, but other topical books. And, you know, whether it was Dave Barry or Molly Ivins or Irma Bombeck, uh, our book. Irma world, Bombeck, I remember that one. <laughs> Irma was a phenomenon. I mean, you know, again, to sell a fraction of what she sold back in the day would be a blessing. But you know, this was, you know, basically what happened with columnists. And, you know, I think of writing a column unto itself as a bit of a throwback in 2022, but certainly trying to do a book and trying to do a humor book series. Yeah. I mean, reminiscent of those kind of folks. And again, I should be so lucky as to repeat what they did. 
And, and to be clear, if you're a fan of Jason's column, you don't need to worry. This is not reheated versions of the column. No, it's all yeah. fresh content. Oh, brand new, brand new, hot off the press. Um, nothing repeated from the Wall Street Journal. So, yes. But but uh, thematically touching some of the same stuff, right? A lot of dad stuff. Sure. Yes. I mean, and, you know, some of the stuff that I've written about in the journal and, you know, recent years, especially has been more general interest stuff that upped a little bit during the pandemic. Um, And so, you know, it triggered a bunch of thoughts and emotions that I didn't get into in the paper necessarily that I expanded upon at length. You know, it's a different muscle set. I want to rattle off some of the subjects, but then I feel like that's dismissive because it's like dad loses his phone. Dad doesn't bring his shoes with him when he travels. Uh, dad takes his kid on trips. Um, but they're all good. Look, if you like Jason, they, then you should. You should read it. They all can't be Ulysses here, Kafka. You know, like it's uh, keep it simple and to the point. You know, I'm strictly looking to entertain people. If you are looking to buy a book that'll make you laugh or make somebody else laugh, that's what I'm trying to achieve here. I'm trying to read. I got to warn you. There's language. a little. There's a little bit of heavy. There's a little bit of heavy in here too, which is yeah, very a good touch well. of it. A touch of it. I appreciate that. Is this a book you agreed to do during the pandemic, or you'd already agreed to do it, and then there was a pandemic, and then you had to write? Uh, what an astute question. I, it, it was a combination. It definitely sort of came to being as a pandemic adjacent book. You know, we talked about you know myself and my editor and. Uh, about the idea of doing humor based upon the pandemic. But, you know, not only is the pandemic not a terribly humorous thing, it was, you know, anathema to publishers. Publishers aren't exactly thrilled at the idea of putting pandemic on the cover of books. And, you know, despite it being this earth-changing event, life-changing event, um, the decision was, like, we have to, like, you know, acknowledge its existence, but not, like, drive headlong into it. And I think we ultimately made the right call. I mean, there are... You know, numerous allusions to things that are going on, but it is mildly a pandemic book and certainly wouldn't call it a pandemic humor book because, as we know, you know, there wasn't much terribly funny about the situation. You're not doing chapters on masks or people fighting in in airplanes. You know, we did a little bit of that uh, when it was happening. But again, you know, it's it's just... I think it's hard to write a humor column in this day and age, to be honest with you, not to pat myself on the back, but I do feel that we are living in an environment that is, you know, obviously supercharged for a number of very legitimate reasons. And the idea of making fun of a serious situation is quite fraught. So, um, you know, I think we made the right choices with this book. Let me ask you about the the job. I I know we've talked about your work in the past, but I am curious. Uh, First of all, sports and humor columnist is, uh, again, an awesome title. Um, (laughs) How do you decide, do you decide, like, I'm going to do X number of sports items uh, over the next couple months and then then this number of humor items? Is it all, I mean, obviously there's a calendar, so you know you're going to pay attention to the World Series or the Super Bowl, et cetera. How do you decide when when something's a sports column and when it's a humor column or when it's a non-sports column? Yeah, I wish it were, uh, you know, a thoughtful endeavor. It's much more rote than that. I write the sports column every week, a couple times a week at least. It probably comes out to about two and a half times a week because there are weeks that I do four, weeks that I do one. Uh, and then the humor column alternate weeks with Joe Queenan. So uh, I'm writing. Oh, I didn't. I did not realize months. they were different columns. I thought they were all just <laughs> here's what Jason Gay has. No, seriously. <laughs> Listen, Joe, the legend, the Philly legend, whose books, you know, I remember deeply reading those standing up in the Harvard Coop, like reading those books back in the day. I mean, he's, you know, I've, I've borrowed liberally from the Joe Queen and ethos. 
And like you said, I think it's hard to do humor, period. I would assume that writing maybe in the journal a humor column is is doubly, triply difficult, right? It's the journal, not known for uproarious stuff, um, which is also good for you, right? Because you get to stand out. Right. But uh, you know, unlike writing for the New York Times, where there's a decent sense of who your audience might be, I assume it's probably more diverse ideologically, maybe in terms of reception to, to different kinds of jokes. Are you aware that like you're writing for a more purplish audience? Or maybe you, what I imagine is a purplish audience. <laughs> are you are you saying that the journal may not have a rich tradition of humor and satire in it and that I am, you know, somewhat of an anomaly? I mean, look, I yes. feel very fortunate to work at a paper that is read. I mean, look, you and I have both worked places in our careers where, I mean, I have worked at you know, newspapers, publications where like we get one letter and someone would run through the office and be like, we got a letter, someone read the stories. And so just to be at a place where there's this fire hose of reaction is just a complete shock. I glide in the slipstream of a lot of really talented reporters at the journal. Uh, you know, I'm sort of just goofily playing the piano off on the side. But yeah, I mean, I feel it's a big, wide country, obviously a, a range of opinions. And, you know, the journal audience has been nothing but fantastic to me in terms of just giving me feedback, letting me know when they don't agree with me. And, you know, I feel like I give as good as I get and all fair. If they have to, li if I, if they have to listen to me, I have to listen to them. Do you ever feel like, you know, if I was writing this somewhere else, I'd be writing about Donald Trump or pick your topic, but at the journal, I don't, I don't want to do it. It's too much pain. Um, it's going to upset more people than it's going to please, et cetera. Well, I have written about Trump a couple of times uh -huh. and like I definitely felt like, you know, there was fertile ground to, for humor there for sure. I mean, at a certain point, it becomes less funny. And that category of humor was certainly well occupied by other outlets. But no, I've never had any kind of, you know, timidity about a topic because of the audience of the paper or the perceived audience of the paper. I, I just feel like whatever makes me laugh is the thing that I'm going to run toward. And there's definitely an idea sometimes to counter-program. You know, like, I'm exhausted by the Twitter story, and, like, I know that everybody wants to make an Elon Musk joke, but I, I've already heard 2,000 too many Elon Musk jokes. I don't know if I'm going to get into that business right now. Maybe at a different point, but, you know, at a certain point, these, these, these topics just get exhausted. Save it for your Substack. By the way, I think you're the only person I've had uh, an interview with in, in recent weeks who's either not running a newsletter company or or launching their own Substack. So congrats on that. Yeah, yeah, congrats. <laughs> Gonna take a quick break. Be right back with Jason Gabe. But first, a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we're back. I do want to ask you about some columns because I'm interested yeah, in stuff. Please. You wrote about the NFL moving to Amazon for years. This was something that 
I was waiting for, uh, for yeah. big tech to start getting yeah. into broadcasting NFL games. And by the time it rolled out this fall, it seemed like a non-event. The first day it went up, people were complaining about not being able to stream it. But I haven't heard those complaints. It seems like the main complaint is the games aren't good. Or, or But I, yeah. again, I'm living a coastal bubble. Are you seeing or hearing something different? No, I, that that... that. That's true to what I've been hearing, too, that the game, the low quality of the games has been mainly the issue. The first game that they had, I think, was Rams-Chiefs, and that turned out to be a really good game, but the rest of them have been kind of, you know, pet food. I feel like the big thing that they did was to not do a big thing. They did not try to reinvent the wheel with the broadcast. They went out and got Fred Godelli, who's the uh, executive producer of Sunday Night Football, to sort of put his sheen over the programming. They, of course, hired Al Michaels, they paired him with Kirk Herbstreet, which I guess is a little bit of a risk because Kirk Herbstreet did college football primarily or does college football primarily, but he's not somebody who's exactly, you know, a radical in the booth. And so that pairing doesn't really shock people. I think for people in our business and your business, especially, Peter, the sort of most interesting aspect of this is that for the first time you're getting Amazon Prime numbers, you're getting actual like ratings for what these things are doing. And I think that's been the real upbeat note for you know both the people who program this stuff at amazon but also for the nfl that you can achieve a broadcast level rating and they, they have truly indeed been you know plus 10 million close to 15 million ratings in some cases and that's a real huge number that's a, you know that'll put you number two for the entire week up against sunday night and, football right and to underline that's people who have figured out how to make the box stream live TV, which is something that was an open question for a long time. Yes, I, it does create one sort of behavioral tick that I am frustrated by, which is that are you purely streaming or you still have cable television in your home? I stream cable TV. So there we go. Okay, yeah, same here. Same here. So I have direct TV stream. But I actually have to like leave environments to toggle between Thursday night football and like say I'm watching a Laker game like I was the other night. So like that's a little bit annoying. That's a little bit less anno more annoying than kind of just flicking, you know, previous channel on your cable TV box. So I don't know how you get out of that. You know, we're talking about pressing buttons, not exactly, you know. It is it is what we call a champagne problem. Champagne problem, exactly. Yeah, no, I, 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 the other day, I'm like, I couldn't figure out where the Premier League soccer game I wanted to watch was on, was on regular TV or Peacock or uh, Paramount. And you know what? I solved it with Google. It was, I was able I mean, to do it. I mean, there are some maddening frustrations. To, it's not an original point to say that we are going to circle back to something that looks very similar to the thing we all broke away from with cable television packages. Somebody is going to create some sort of version of cable TV via streaming that you know, we'll sort of flatten all the different providers we have and make it easier for us to wander around them. But I think, you know, generally speaking, the sort of magic of what I do and streaming era is that all of this stuff is accessible in a way that it never was. I mean, you can get all of it. You, you mentioned that the, the NFL broadcast itself looked, sounded exactly like regular NFL broadcasts. It's got Al Michaels, who's been on TV forever. And I understand why both Amazon and the NFL would want to just say, here is exactly what you're used to seeing. It's just coming through a different pipe. Um, that said, audiences for for football are, are flat. You know, it's, they're not getting bigger. Your kids, my kids are going to be harder sells for, for live sports in the future, do you imagine that at some point they're really going to have to reinvent the way they show the game? Or do you think it's going to stay pretty consistent? Well, I think it'll stay consistent 
as the sort of top entertainment product for television, you know, like that is far and away the highest rated thing that exists on broadcast television. And now, you know, whatever we're calling Amazon and streaming era, it's, it's the highest rating stuff. I think the change that you're describing is behavioral. You know, the whole notion of sitting on a couch and saying, okay, I'm going to watch the football game. Here's the first quarter. Here's the second quarter. Now the third quarter. And you're there for three and a half hours and you've processed, you know, 47 Dodge ads the younger consumer doesn't process entertainment that way, whether it's, you know, film and television or live sports. They are getting it, you know, sent to them via social media. They are watching multiple things at once. They are able to stay on top of, you know, a game remotely in a way that you or I never imagined when we were younger. And so the process of reaching those individuals, whether it's you know tagging advertising to highlights or so on, that is the riddle that they have to unscramble. I don't think the numbers are going to crash in a way that's going to make, you know, for big changes in the way that NFL teams are compensating players or getting television contracts. But I do think they have to really consider where their audience is, and especially that younger audience that advertisers covet. Can you pronounce the last name of the Miami quarterback who was concussed twice on live TV? Tua Tagovailoa. Okay. Um, I wasn't trying to get you <laughs> so on the spot. I just didn't know. want to do it myself. <laughs> yeah, Tua Tagovailoa. So I can't pronounce it either. Yeah. So I, I was struck, and you wrote about him. This is the, you know, yeah. these brutal injuries that happened on live TV. It was really upsetting. There was a brief moment of what is to be done. Mm-hmm. And this was Thursday night football, too. Yes, it was Thursday night football. And the answer was to fire a doctor who no one can identify. Literally, they don't know what his name is. Her name, possibly. Um, And now Tua, I'm just going to use his first name, was playing this weekend. Um, We're done pretending that the NFL is going to sort of change the fact that uh, the players – the players are at enormous long-term risk, both short-term and long-term risk. We've just made our peace with that. I guess that's not really even a question, but is uh, do you agree? I mean, I think that the whole act of watching football requires a level of cognitive dissonance that is now sort of baked into the audience. They we just have accepted the fact you've come of age when you have watched players, you know, be wheeled off the field with some regularity. There's always you know one or two very terrible injuries uh, per season, if not more. The concussion studies are incredibly troubling. The prevalence of CTE uh, in players is incredibly troubling, but I don't think that there is any correspondence between the increase of information we have and the audience in terms of the audience being eroded by this. You know, I do hear from people who say they have turned away from the sport, but they're certainly not doing it in any kind of volume that makes the NFL reconsider what they're doing. You know, the Tua moment is kind of this you know, it is the sort of cautionary thing. It is the thing you think, okay, there is going to be this period of football before this injury and this period of football after this injury because it was apparent to anybody who's watching it, including the actual analysts and NFL players who are on the scene to cover it, who are just horrified by it and horrified by sort of the, you know, calcified reaction to it. But it doesn't manifest in any sort of material change to the audience. And until that sort of thing happens, I don't think you're going to see any kind of radical action. Yeah, I don't think it will ever happen, mostly because, you know, the the scene we saw uh, the last, earlier this fall where you see a guy's head being slammed down against the turf and bouncing back and forth. Um, 
that's horrific. As far as I know, and I'm not a CTE expert, most of the damage that players are suffering is from sort of everyday play-to-play contact um, yes. that does, that's all legal. Um, yeah. and fine. It's just that you get, if you get, if you're a lineman, you get hit in the head dozens of times in a, during right. the game right. times, multiple seasons, you will have CTE regardless of it, whether it was shown on TV or not. Subconcussive contact. And I think one of the things that got lost in the Tua conversation is that the issue is not that Tua had two concussions. I mean, though no one would want to have two concussions. The issue is that the second concussion by the nature of brain injuries is exponentially, the harm from that is exponentially higher than the first one because you're dealing with a brain that is healing itself at the moment and then you you know administer a second blow to it. That can be terribly devastating and that's why you saw the, you know, the fencing pose, which is kind of the neurological reaction to a brain injury, which is just horrifying to witness, especially in real yeah. time and you're watching it on replay. Speaking of moral compromise, how do you, how are you thinking about the world the World Cup? Uh, I guess this will be November when you hear this this month in Qatar. Yeah. Well, yeah. It does not normally happen in the desert or in November. No, no, it doesn't. Neither. I mean, and the amount of contortion that has has to happen to first of all assign it to Qatar, award it to Qatar. Um, you know, sort of look the other way with all the kinds of infrastructural crises that have existed around this and, and, the, and the devastation to immigrant labor in that country and, you know, the host of human rights concerns about this host country. Uh, you know, the sad part of it is that as a sports writer in 2022, I'm shockingly experienced with uh, compromise hosts, you know, whether it's the Winter Olympics taking place in China, whether it's, you know, the world prior World Cup occurring in Russia, uh, whether it's calls to remove, you know, sporting events from countries like Saudi Arabia. We are incredibly used to the notion of major sporting events happening in places with abundant human rights concerns. And, you know, the good news of it though there's very little good news, but I think the, the public is very aware of this. You know, this is, you know, now everybody knows what sports washing means, which is using sporting events to sort of sanitize a compromised image. And, you know, this is a classic example of that with this World Cup. And that what they rely on, which is the same thing that the NFL relies on with regards to head injury, is that once they turn that page, once they drop the ball and they get out there and start playing, that you are just going to push it all to the side and become a fan. And again, until you see some sort of material erosion of the audience, it's hard to imagine that the governing bodies are going to make much of a change. Let's end this on an upbeat note. Let's talk about Philadelphia. I don't usually conflate the two things. Um, you, you wrote today <laughs> about the, the great run in Philadelphia sports. I, I've got a lot of people in Philadelphia, so I'm aware of it. Yeah. Um, that said, if if I didn't have people in Philadelphia, I would not be aware that that the Philadelphia Phillies are are in the World Series. That the World Series being held, it seems to not exist in, in sort of my general sports consumption. Um, <laughs> is that a reflection of of baseball's sort of diminished stature, or that there's le- that that sports is a less of a unifier than than we imagine? I don't know. I feel like these have been pretty exciting baseball playoffs. Have you had? drop off in terms of, you know, major teams like the New York Yankees were swept out of it by the Houston Astros, who are the opponent in the in the World Series. Los Angeles Dodgers have gone by the wayside. Atlanta Braves have gone by the wayside. Top, top, you know, 100-win teams have been pushed aside. 
Um, but I think the Phillies are a great story. It's not really a David versus Goliath kind of thing because the Phillies are a top, top payroll. They pay $30 million salaries over there too. But they are, you know, this punchy team and this is a World Series that's joined. You will see the way that the Astros went through the Yankees. They swept them in four games. Phillies right out of the box won game one with a spectacular comeback. This is going to be a really good series. They have three games happening this week in Philadelphia. No one's going to, you know, I, I, I would be surprised if a winner emerged from game five. Um, but, you know, this is uh, happening at the same time that the Philadelphia Eagles are undefeated at 7-0 atop the NFL. Um, great times to be a Philly sports fan. And usually it's, you know, something of the opposite. It's always great um, when Philadelphia is involved in a, in a big sporting event because if they win, they do things like literally eat horse shit uh, on video, um, which you can still find on Twitter if you Google oh, it there. Gosh. And that's oh, where gosh. we're going to leave this interview. Jason Gay, I love reading your stuff. Um, I always want you to come on the podcast, but apparently you only do it when you got a book to promote. But that's all right. Oh, I'll be yes. here for your next one. Uh, listen, Peter, I appreciate it always. And listen, I appreciate that you ate a little bit of horse shit here too. Excellent. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Jason. So glad we got to leave on that very particular note. Uh, thanks again to Travis, who produced and edited the show, and our advertisers who bring you this show for free. This is a bonus episode of Rico Media, so we'll see you again this week. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 